Welcome to episode 365 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're looking at that eschaton. I got so distracted by this thing I'm about to say that I almost forgot to say, and I'm Tony. I just like froze for a second there. Like my memory was buffering. It's not that big. I just realized that this is the... I don't know what we want to call it, but this is the 365th episode. There's officially That's right. one episode for every day of an ordinary year. That's right. That's crazy. It's crazy. That's so absolutely wild. It's actually, well, it's, it's great. Of course it's uh, to God's credit that we've been able to keep recording and keep talking 365 times. I it's the only thing that's, I guess, unfortunate to tell you about that is 2024 is leap year. That's true. So well. you're going to end up with one less. We need to, although we have bonus episodes in there. So technically it's more than 365. It's true. And we'll record an episode next week too. So it's it's not as though this is the last episode or anything. It just feels like, yeah, next year is 366 days. So it's like a little bit unsatisfying. So we'll have to like revisit this. We'll just bring it back up again. Yeah. We'll just have to call the next episode like the reformed leap cast or something like that. <laughs> Yes. So we are looking again at the eschaton. We've got some great conversation, I think, coming up in this episode. People who've been tracking with us know that we're kind of sequentially laying out lots of these details about the eschaton. So we've talked about the intermediate state. We talked about the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And now you should be asking, well, what happens after that? So we're going to get into a little final judgment today, which sounds like a video game. Is that a video game? Probably. Just got that air to it. Yeah, I feel like it could be a video game. It should be a video game. Yeah, I mean, there's the final countdown. There is the final countdown. Yeah, exactly. The final judgment. But before we do any kind of remixing, let's go back to the OG stuff. Let's do a little affirming and a little denying. What are you affirming with on this episode? So I had the opportunity to visit with the local Orthodox Presbyterian Church Presbytery meeting this past week, and they had a number. It was a rather busy docket. Um, I could share what it is. The sessions are open sessions, but I, I don't think that's necessary. But they had a very busy docket. And what I'm affirming today is just the way that the OPC and, and the PCA, I think to a lesser extent, but they have a similar process, just the, the way that they value order and unity uh, and the way that that sort of expresses itself in a well-defined process that everybody has agreed to. So the subject matters at hand were at times contentious and at times difficult. They weren't, they weren't, you know, they weren't like rubber stamping things. They were real substantive discussions and there was substantive disagreement among the brothers who were meeting, uh, yet they still moved through their business in a relatively quick fashion, uh, in in a good order. And and this is what I said to many people because you know I was there observing. So people are asking me, "What do you think? What you know? What what are you observing?" And what I kept on coming back to is that the unity of God is preserved and demonstrated in the way that His church works. 
And in this instance, in the OPC, the way that their book of order is laid out, the way that their book of discipline is laid out, the way that they manage their presbytery meetings, you know, they use Robert's rules basically, but it, it could be other other ways of like parliamentary procedures to, to maintain order. But the way that they do it is designed to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to speak, that no one side is dominating the conversation, right? If there's a speech for a motion, then the moderator is responsible to give the speeches against the motion an opportunity, a fair opportunity to speak. So I just think it was a really good example of of the church at work in what is sometimes a difficult and uh, a not a very glorious uh, part of her job of, of doing the business of the church. So I'm affirming OPC church polity and specifically church government and the way that they manage their, their business, their business. There's a good general affirmation in there because in this life, there is nothing quite like a parsimonious or efficacious meeting of any kind. One that is substantive gets business done, but moves at the appropriate speed. And I think we can all lament meetings generally. So how much more so should Christians be really good examples of exactly that kind of thing. Never bring in too much complication and keeping it parsimonious. There must be like an appropriate cost borne for anything that we want to bring into that discussion. So at the same time, we're moving forward and achieving something that's productive. Even if that productivity is just manifest in really good conversation, that we've tabled something for another time, but never drags on because those things are just awful. So I'm totally with you. Good meetings, are good meetings. It's true. It's very true. What about you? What are you affirming today? This affirmation is squarely in the place of taking dominion vis-a-vis the Genesis you know, mandate. And it's it's a kind of an un kind of an, maybe maybe not unknown anymore. I don't know what our listeners are into and what they really like, but this is like a strange corner of taking dominion, but it still proves the point and shows God glorious and shows his creation to be glorious in the way it takes dominion. But first Quick, quick, quick math excursus. Everybody hang with me for a second. I've said before, I have this theory that God has made human beings to think logarithmically logarithmically rather than linearly, which is a mouthful. This is the idea of like, we really do have eternity in our hearts. I think also in our minds. So if you think of a linear scale, so think about a graph and on the vertical axis, if it's linear, that means the space between the points is the same. So let's say that you're graphing I don't know, the number of times you've eaten breakfast in the week. If you eat breakfast every day of the week and each day of the week is on the horizontal axis, Sunday through Saturday, and you're accumulating up the number of times you've eaten breakfast, then the best way to show that is to scale the graph between like one through seven. And it just shows that if you eat breakfast every day, the line will move monotonically up until you get to seven, meaning that by the time you get to Saturday, you've had seven breakfasts. But most of life, a lot of life is not like that. And so things move really fast or grow really, really big, often what's called exponentially. And so what happens then, if you were to look at a graph that's exponential, the line will be curved. It'll be nonlinear. It'll be parabolic. In other words, it'll increase at an increasing rate. I think this is how people normally think. One of the ways that I can kind of prove that out is when you get into really the U.S. government's budget or its deficit. These numbers, as they get bigger, become increasingly more difficult to comprehend, and they seem to come closer together, even though they're not. So if you were to say to somebody, tell me, describe to me, what's the difference between like a million dollars and a billion dollars? They'll be like, well, one is bigger. And if you say, well, how much bigger? They might say things like, what's well, 10 times? But in their mind, in our minds, 
they seem closer together, even right. though they're really not. So a logarithmic scale is instead of it being one, two, three, four, five on your Y axis or your vertical axis, the distance between those points are some percentage change. So it'd be like 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000. So I bring all of that up because that you find that all over the natural realm. Again, I think God has impounded and planted that in the way that his creation works. And here's where I just am affirming some taking dominion in a super strange way, but it proves the point. Have you heard about this new thing called Pepper X? No. Oh, wait, maybe I have. Yes, I think I have actually. <laughs> yeah, so Dude's there crazy. is a gentleman who has a company called, I think it's like the Pucker Butts Pepper Company or something like that. Uh, he is known for breeding really hot peppers. You may have heard of his his last creation, not this one. It was the Carolina Reaper pepper. And the way that we score these peppers is on this scale called Scoville Heat Units. This is a new pepper, which he has just released. And you can go and watch an interview of him on YouTube, and it's on um, Hot Ones, I think is what it's called. And it's very fascinating because like, there's a lot of technology around doing this. There's a lot of like, competitiveness. Like, It's been shrouded in secrets. Like, He brought the peppers in a suitcase that was handcuffed to somebody. There were lawyers there. There were guards there because all this stuff is very coveted. But he's created a new pepper. It's called Pepper X. And it measures an average of 2.693 million Scoville units. Now, by comparison, like a jalapeno is 2,000 to 8,000. A serrano is 10,000 to 23,000. So here's where the logarithmic stuff comes in. His previous creation, which was the hottest pepper verified in the entire world, the Carolina Reaper, he developed it as well. It was 1.64 million Scoville units. So this thing is on a logarithmic scale. In other words, this new pepper is three times hotter than that. And it's apparently epic. And here's a weird place where humans are taking them in and, and saying, you know what I want? I want to create, literally create a brand new pepper that is much hotter. And one of the unique things about this pepper, this is where I have to stabilize these peppers so you can replicate them over time, is that most of the time a pepper's heat is in the seeds. People know this. This is why like you scrape out that jalapeno before you make the popper unless you want to blow yourself up. And uh, I mean, blow up your taste buds, not something else, but I suppose <laughs> that could happen as well. But, and this is, this is, I'm going to say a word that I've never said on our podcast before, and it is super weird, but this is the word that is technically used to describe this. The heat in this pepper, rather than being in the seeds, is in the interior white placenta that holds the seeds. Ugh. And this pepper was specifically bred to be like particularly wrinkly. If you look at a picture of this thing, it doesn't look like much. But all of those wrinkles mean that there's an increased amount of this white matter, this placenta, and that's where all the heat is. So I'm affirming with what an amazing world that we live in that God has created. And here's somebody taking dominion by saying, you know what? This previous pepper, which was the record holder at 1.6 million Scoville units, is really just not hot enough. Is it possible to make a pepper that actually has taste that's not like purely distilled capsaicin, but exists in the wild that could be three times logarithmically hotter than that? The answer is yes. And this guy is just doing it. So at some point, I want to get a hold of one of these bad boys. I do want to try it. There's some hot sauce out there that's got it. But I mean, you almost got to do it just to see in moderated form what it tastes like and how different it is than its predecessor, which previously held the record. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't. Here, here's an excerpt from a, an article 
This is uh, Ed Curry, who's the founder of uh, Puckerbutt Peppers, who bred this pepper. He says, the flavor of Pepper X only lasts for a millisecond, and then the heat is overwhelming. Ed Curry said Ed Curry, Puckerbutt Peppers founder. Curry is one of only two people who have eaten the full pepper, alongside Danish musician and veteran pepper eater Chili Klaus. That can't be that guy's real name. The pair sampled the pepper on YouTube talk show Hot Ones, an experience Curry said gave him cramps for four hours. After he finished recording the Hot Ones episode in New York City, Curry said he walked only 10 feet out of his car before he collapsed. Quote, I laid down on a marble wall in the rain and groaned in pain for about an hour, he said. A couple of my friends helped me get up to my room and gave me some ice cream, which just caused the cramps to happen again. Now, if you eat something that makes ice cream hurt you, that's just there's that's just not okay. It's just not okay. It's an experience. Now, these guys, I did watch a large portion of that one. It's worth it because it's just super interesting. It's a whole world again, and it's it's amazing that Dominion is being taken in this particular space. But those guys are taking it to like the extreme level in their consumption. So I have no doubt that, of course, and that other dude, Chili Klaus, which again, that should be like a band. That guy should be a rapper. Is maybe known for like his ability to essentially inhale or eat in one sitting, like full a full pepper, and this thing is just like of another level. Obviously, it's just amazing again that somebody can say like, "We have grown this," and this is all by natural means. I mean, they're they're basically just propagating through, you know, growing techniques. These peppers, yeah. we're the hottest pepper on record, which is super hot. I mean, you've had the Reaper before. That's in that hot sauce that you and I have shared a couple of times. Yeah. The one that I didn't realize how much it was hot and I just dumped it all over my. Amazing. Yeah. And, yeah, and, the and name I, of that it was, hot sauce it was bad. It was bad. Is extreme regret it has a skull and crossbones on it. Like it's, it's hot and you just got to moderate it. Like it's great as a spice, as part of your food, not as like a complete sauce to dip your food in. So it's amazing that somebody would say, you know what, we need to figure out a way to like, again, boost that by three times. I think there is a place for it. But again, in some ways, it's just like dominion for the sake of dominion, but still proves that God has allowed this to take place and that human beings have this incredible opportunity and responsibility in taking dominion and they continue to do that. So I'll report back. I got to find, there's a hot sauce that they mentioned there that has it in there in three forms. It's like ground up, it's uh, the pepper itself, and then it's like a distillation of it, which Stay away from distill, distilled like pepper stuff. That's usually not good. It can taste chemically. But yeah. he does talk about wanting to have some flavor with this. So I think it has a place. And I'm just curious. But what an amazing, super weird corner of the world. Yeah. Just in case you want to look up the article I was just reading for from, it's on NBCNews.com. And it's called New Pepper X Hotter Than Law Enforcement Grade Pepper Spray Hits the Market. <laughs> so... When the police want to stop someone in their tracks, they spray them with something. And this thing that this dude made just by breeding peppers down is hotter right. than that. That's right. I feel like there's a, there's gotta be like a diagnosis code for that. That's crazy. It's, it's crazy. Again, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get some at some point, which I don't think you can get them. I think he's, he's got them on lockdown. They've been used uh, in a couple of things where he's been given He's given granted rather the rights for production of certain sauces. My goal would be to get them, scrape them out a little bit, let's get rid of some of that placenta, and then put the rest <laughs> of it 
do some pickling or some fermenting of that stuff and make something a little bit more mild to see what the flavor is. Anyway, this thing's going to give you hallucinations. We need to live stream this thing when you do it. Enough that will they talk about this, how that eating spicy foods and we're talking about like, not just like, again, a, a little dab of this stuff, which is really more my vibe. Like I'm not trying to be brave or courageous here, but those people, those guys who are trying to literally like consume the whole pepper, or you probably seen their pepper eating contest. Look yeah. that up sometime. If you want to see something super interesting, these people will get like, there will be like some, like all kinds of like psychological ramifications from eating like this much spicy food in such great degree and with such great magnitude in a single sitting. Yeah. And they talk about almost like hallucinatory type effects of hot peppers. That should, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I mean, that's just wild. So yeah, anyway, that's, that's crazy. It's crazy. Save, save us from, from peppers. What hot and spicy denial do you have? Well, strangely enough, this is related to the tongue as well. So I'm denying biting your tongue, but like, not like biting your tongue, like not speaking. Cause that's actually usually a good thing to do, but like actually biting your tongue. It's just, it, I have to believe that Adam and Eve's tongues were structured in a way prior to the fall where it was not possible to bite their tongues. And one of the consequences of the fall was that our tongues somehow mutated so that we could bite them. I, while I was eating my lunch earlier, I had this nice cheeseburger I'm eating some fries with some ketchup and I went to take a bite and somehow I just bit the tip of my tongue, like right on the tip of my tongue. Mm. So now my mouth tastes like I've been sucking on pennies. It's, oh, it, it's just bad. It's gross. It's just gross. That's so, awful. You know what that as well could be extended. Have you ever, so the, I'm with you. Here, here's what continues to sound me. I think you're right. This is the result of the fall. How I'm a person that's chewed a lot of food over my life. Like I feel like if you were to ask me, are you above average in consuming food and using your jaws to masticate things that you eat? I'd say, yeah, I'm pretty good. And yet there will always be that time, always, where it's a normal day. I go to bite something. It could be something I'm eating with my hands, like a sandwich, like you're saying, or I take a bite of chicken. Somehow my cheek finds its way right between my jaws. And yeah. you have you ever done this where you get that crunch? Mm -hmm. Like you literally hear your flesh breaking and you and it's just wildly painful. And you think to yourself, how did this even happen that it yeah. found its way somewhere between my teeth? The weirdest is I once in a while will bite the bottom of my tongue and I can't even figure out mechanically how what? that happens. Like after it happens, I spend a significant amount of time manip like physically reaching into my mouth and like moving my tongue around to try to figure out how that part of my tongue got between my teeth and I just can do it. This one is just like right on the tip of my tongue like literally the tip of my tongue. So this one's easy to figure out. Yeah. There's that funny, that funny clip of Jim on the office where he's doing like one of his little interview things and he bites his cheek and then he stops and like resets the interview and then he bites yes. his cheek again and he just stands up in a rage and he rips the microphone off. He throws it down and he walks out and he says, I'm going home. And you know, that doesn't, that doesn't feel like an overreaction at this point. No, it, it doesn't because you also, when you bite it, you know that the pain has only just begun oh, yeah. because generally it develops into some kind of sore, which is also super painful. That's a whole nother thing. So yeah, mouth related injuries that you inflict upon yourself doing normative behaviors that you think you should be better at. Cause whenever I do that, I always think, what, what can I not eat? Like yeah. have I not eaten before where my teeth are just trying to go everywhere in my mouth and to just chomp down on anything that they find between <laughs> them. So it's a mystery to me. 
And I'm with you. I, I haven't thought about that, but it seems like really strong theology that Adam and Eve were not like biting their cheeks it's true. or their tongues. What's really crazy, I read an article once. It's funny how many weird random articles I've read over my lifetime. I read an article once where they actually talked about the fact that like your brain has defense mechanisms that will not allow you to bite. I don't know why I was reading this article, but like you couldn't bite your finger off. Like if you wanted to, you couldn't do it. Your brain would not let yeah. you bite down hard enough on your tongue or your finger or whatever you couldn't like, unless there's something wrong with your brain, which happens to people, but you just couldn't do it. Your brain wouldn't let you do it. Your body is designed in a way where you can't bite off parts of it unless it's your tongue and you don't realize you're doing it and you're also eating food. And that's like, that's the worst part is like, it's not only physically painful, but it's like psychologically painful because you're like, I just ate a part of my body along with my chicken sandwich. And that's disgusting. Yes, it is. That's some, that is some eschaton right there. The new heavens and the new earth where we will just be able to chew freely and liberally without fear or concern that somehow parts of our own mouth will make it in between our teeth. I just had a terrifying thought. <laughs> what if weeping and gnashing your teeth also involves biting your tongue for all eternity? Yeah. Like every that, once in a while, you feel like you're just getting used to the gnashing of your teeth and then every once in a while your cheek just makes its way in there. I mean, why not? Yeah. I mean, honestly, there, there's a few things, again, more painful than that. And you're right. Like there is a, this visceral reaction when I do that, like you, you bite and then you kind of try to release up quick, it's a, but there is a delay. It's like that synopsis with your brain Yeah, doesn't happen quickly enough. So you've already inflicted the pain. You've already applied like all kinds of PSI to your tongue, your cheek. So yeah, struggle is real, loved ones. Sin is real. I mean, so, this is. If my voice sounds a little weird, if I sound, if I'm talking a little strange, is because my my tongue is not functional right now the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, you're doing a great job. I, I appreciate you. This is how you know, loved ones, that we just work through the pain. It's Tony, there, he's just still after it. We're still going to talk. Suffering, he's talking suffering for the Lord. <laughs> oh my! This is this is the lightest burden anyone has ever had to bear for Jesus. <laughs> So that's, that's, uh, not, not a big deal. Uh, what are you, what are you, I'm going to bite my tongue now and shut up. And what are you denying today, Jesse? Well done. I'm denying against our culture's, I guess, lost ability to actually apologize. I came across recently a New York times article by Elizabeth Spears, who often writes for the times And what I found interesting about this article, which she entitles, I have a question for the famous people who have tried to apologize, is she is lamenting and noting that, she's not a Christian as far as I know, but that secular culture, at least manifest in so many celebrities, have just completely lost their way with respect to apologizing. And what I found really interesting about this article, and you can go look it up for yourself, it's certainly worth reading, is that there's so much in here, of course, that really is biblical. Actually, the whole thing is really biblical. And she had a lot to say about this in terms of making sure that when you express apology, of course, it's genuine. There's like actual contrition, but there's this air of repentance. And in fact, she quotes another piece at one point from a woman, another author called Beth Poland. And here are the six components of an apology that Beth Poland puts forward. Here they are. One, an expression of regret. This usually is the actual words, I'm sorry. Second, an explanation, but importantly, not a justification. So acknowledging, for instance, that like you're sorry, you were selfish, you were inconsiderate, 
explaining that those behaviors were what inflicted the behavior, but the behavior was wrong. Third, an acknowledgement of responsibility. Four, a declaration of repentance, which I found wild. Five, an offer of repair. And six, a request for forgiveness. This is the true elements of yeah. an apology. I'll never forget this. And I say this in part because I know that my mother is probably listening. And that is one of the things I always remember about growing up and about being taught about how to apologize were two elements that my parents instilled in us, especially my mother. One was to say that you were sorry, like full stop, that you were actually sorry. And sometimes that, of course, means that we're by expressing those words, we might have to fake it a bit till we make it. It's coming out with that and not trying to justify. But the second component I think is equally important. It's the other side of that apology coin. And that is asking, making a request for forgiveness, saying, I'm sorry, I did this thing. Will you forgive me? That I think is a true apology. Certainly we have a tendency to lose our way on this, but I found it amazing that we have secular writers saying, this is really what it means to say that you're sorry. This is really what it means to go either publicly or privately and to apologize. So I'm denying against the fact that we've really all lost our way, maybe Christians too, but certainly most of our culture has completely lost its way with apology. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, one of the lesser known elements of my job. So I work as a, a patient relations specialist. So I do, I do like patient complaint resolution. And one of the, one of the elements of my job is actually to write response letters to patients who filed a certain kind of complaint. And it never, it never fails that if I, um, if I put the time into the letter to identify what was done wrong or something that we can legitimately apologize for. And I don't usually use the words, please forgive us, but some something that's equivalent in terms of like, you know, we hope we can regain your trust. Something in a, in a personal apology, that wouldn't be appropriate. But when you're apologizing on behalf of like an institution, please forgive us is sort of a weird phrase. But when those elements that were identified are actually present in my response letters, um, I almost never hear back from that person in negative fashion. When I write a letter that either we don't have anything to apologize for, right? Because that happens sometimes. Someone will complain about something and it's, it's not actually the case that that even happened or it wasn't accurate what they thought happened. When I don't have a, an actual genuine apology, those always come back to me. They always come back because what people are looking for is not a trite response to wrongdoing. They're looking for genuine remorse and a commitment to change and a a desire to be reconciled in some fashion. And that's, I mean, that's exactly what the Bible teaches is repentance and what it's all about. Whether it's repentance between between persons or whether it's repentance before God, there's a there those elements are always pres- present. So that's a that's an interesting uh, little common grace quirk there that this secular writer stumbled upon. Yeah, I'm with you. It's and it's one of those things. Of course, she was just challenging the social mores, the social norm. But one might ask the question aside from the gospel and the scriptures. Well, why? Who cares, really? So I find it interesting again that we come back to these things that when one party has been wrong and expresses a legitimate grievance, that it is incumbent upon the other party, the one who has inflicted the wrong, to make a sincere and genuine expression of that wrongdoing. And that that expression in some ways has these fundamental like common characteristics that we'd expect to be present. And she's enumerating those in this article. And like you said, it's really an acknowledgement of the gospel. It's also maybe somewhat condemning as well, because these are, in fact, the very things that we should have before the Lord when we go for confession. Yeah. And Spurgeon said to keep short accounts that we're agreeing with God of what he says about us 
and that he is a righteous judge. And that, of course, leads us into the topic today, because we're really talking about this idea of the final judgment. Again, we've already been to this place talking about the intermediate state and then about the fact that the, it's, it's truism's objective reality, in fact, that both the righteous and the unrighteous will be raised. And so we've already spent some time talking about the separation of the soul from the person, from the body, is a sign and an emblem of the spiritual separation from God that first brought about physical death. And that we that will be deepened after death for those who leave this world without Christ. Uh, that's why, of course, we talk about like death being the enemy. And that's like 1 Corinthians 15. So for Christians, the terror of physical death is totally abolished. The unpleasantness is probably still there in many cases. Uh, the unpleasantness of dying still remains. But Jesus, our risen Savior, has passed himself through a more traumatic death than any Christian will ever have to face. And now he lives to support his servants as they move out of this world to the place he has prepared for them in the next world. Yeah. So Christians and all people actually, but Christians especially, of course, should view our own forthcoming death as an appointment in Jesus' calendar, which he's going to faithfully keep. The other appointment, though, is this final judgment that is going to take place for all people, those who are raised. And we know, as we said before, that all are raised. So let's get after it. Let's yeah. talk about this final judgment. Yeah, so I, I want to admit kind of at the onset of this conversation that there are elements of what the Bible seems is apparently teaching on this subject that I, I don't fully understand and I can't fully reconcile with other theological commitments that I hold. And we'll get into some of that. Um, but I want to read a couple things from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is from chapter 33 because it's important when talking about this final judgment. It's important to ground not only why it is that God has revealed to, this to us, right? There's an epistemological element that God has revealed to us that there will be this final judgment. And there's a reason why he has revealed it to us, right? He could have planned a final judgment and just not told us about it, right? Left it, left it to be something we discover when we get there. But he chose to tell us about it and there's a reason. And then also there is a reason why there is a final judgment. And, and when I say final judgment, I'm not just talking about the outcome of everybody's life. But I, I believe an actual event in, uh, in time, I guess you want to say it, but a temporal, actual, concrete event where God will judge all people, like a, an actual judgment courtroom event. Now, what that looks like, what exactly that looks like, does it all happen at once? Do we all line up? I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us those details. So I want to read from chapter 33 of the Westminster Confession. I'm not going to read all of the articles, but I'm going to read a little snippets of each. So the beginning of, of section one says, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father. And then the first little part of section two. The end, so we should read the purpose, the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. So that's the purpose of the judgment. And then section three here is the epistemological purpose of, of revealing to us that this judgment will take place. And it says, as Christ would have us be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. 
So will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and always be watchful. So the, the purpose of the revelation of it is actually unto the salvation of the elect. It's unto the salvation of the elect. And then in a certain sense, it's unto the restraining of sin, even for those who are not elect. So all men uh, know that there's a judgment coming. There's a, there's a natural law. Once you, once you have the commitment that God is, is real and that he's revealing himself and that we know intrinsically that we are sinners and we've fallen short of a standard, which it's, I don't know any reformed thinkers that would deny that, that that's a common knowledge among men. That's, that's built into our Imago Dei, right? We know that there's a problem. We know that ultimately people will get what's coming to them. Even beyond that, that restrains sin. So, so those are kind of the big things, right? right? There's, there's a day which God will judge the world in righteousness. And he does this judgment by Jesus Christ who has been given power and judgment from the Father. The reason for this judgment is for God's glory in saving the elect and his justice in condemning and destroying the, the reprobate. And then the reason he's revealed this is so that we will be, con we will be con consoled, right? There's consolation that those who are oppressed. I, I over the summer when, um, when dad was out on medical leave, um, I preached through the book of James and I was stunned. Honestly, I was stunned how often the idea of the judgment of those who are opposing and oppressing God's people, the judgment of those people is brought forward by James as a means of, of comforting those who are being oppressed. It's all over the letter. It was a theme that I did not expect to come across when I started that letter. And that really is the case. And this is the ultimate end of that, right? We shouldn't revel in the downfall of the wicked. Like we shouldn't be satisfied when someone who is, you know, has been mean to us, gets what's coming to them. Like this isn't, this isn't uh, like one of those instant regret videos where like somebody spins out their wheels at a, at a stoplight and is just being a jerk. And then the cop pulls up behind him and we all kind of snicker and go, <laughs> that guy got what's coming. That's not what this is. This is a righteous consolation that although there appears to be great evil and at times God's people appear to be the most oppressed and defeated by this great evil, that that great evil, both in in terms of Satan, uh, Satan and his demons. The first we didn't read it, but the first section here points out that not only will men be judged, but the apostate angels. Satan is the great evil, but then the great evil of men in the fall. All of that will come to an end and be judged, and we should take comfort in that. So that's I think that's the framing for this this conversation. Um, it, looking at the clock here, I think this is going to probably be a two part episode because there's a lot to go through. But that's right. if we don't land that framing, then we we fly off into all sorts of weird. Um, trying to be charitable, how I say this. There are certain quarters of evangelicalism that get really obsessed about this kind of stuff. They get really obsessed about the spiritual realities and the spiritual warfare. If we don't frame it in those kind of that threefold reality, there is a day coming. It's a good, it's a good day. God is God is just and righteous in that day, that he's appointed it for his own glory and for his own manifestation of his glory, and that he's revealed it to us to comfort us and to restrain sin. If we don't frame it in that that sort of threefold framework, we can really, really get final judgment wrong. Right. There's no doubt that the Bible puts all this in the perspective of actual events, right. that this is just a truism. It's just objective fact. It does take that for granted in some ways. Of course, you'll see Hebrews mention this and it just kind of comes at you like, yeah, this is going to happen. Uh, just get after it. Just be prepared for it. And of course, there is a great fear in this. There's either holy dread, understanding that 
the Christian is saved and spared. It's been covered under the blood of Christ that fears dissolved in blood. Or for those that have opposed actively Christ, then there is only this kind of final ruling. But that is going to bring condemnation and pain and suffering. The bottom line is there will be a complete final adjudication and rendering. Yes. And that will take place for all people. And there is kind of, as you said, kind of a temporal order of events here for that. So I think it is helpful to just talk about the fact that this is a thing that is coming and why is it necessary? It's necessary, at least in part, as we understand the scriptures, because it is incumbent upon God to judge the moral character and to assess righteousness and wickedness. This is the final writing of all things, so to speak. So the Bible says, of course, that there's only one standard. That is the moral character of God. We've said before, I think we talked about heaven. One of the things we have to think about is when you stand before God, he has a right to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? So where the rest of the world is, is reimagining and recomposing the rules of how they might be able to spend the afterlife and some kind of like fabricated glory by their own standards, this reminds us that it is God's domain. He is the supreme and final standard of what is right and wrong. His character is the norm. It's the standard of measurement by which all moral character is judged. Yeah. And the Bible is really insistent upon that fact. And it's insistent upon the fact that that judgment is going to happen, I think you were kind of hinting at this earlier, in the presence of God, a holy God, that character will be judged at the last. And that really is the meaning of all this wealth and imagery that we find in the New Testament dealing with man's final destiny. I know that Christians sometimes are uncomfortable with the word destiny. I think what we're after here is this idea that the destiny for mankind is to be judged. And again, if we read like these books at the end or opens like Revelation 20 style and it, his life, your life and mine, it could be judged according to the things written in these books. And what is that book? It's really the record of man's moral being, like our real selves. And what we find in that moment, that real moment, like you said, in the courtroom, is that this searchlight of God's holy character, like flaming in its purity, is going to search and lay bare all of man's life in accordance with the character of God. Yeah. And that's the judgment seat. That's the actual examination. And then after that examination, when there's nothing that can be hidden, there will be a verdict, an actual verdict rendered. And I'm with you. This, as the Bible describes it, is a single event, a single event. God has appointed a day in which he's going to judge the world, like Acts 17. And you can put like any kind of, I don't know, like markers around this, but we're talking about a discrete event, an experience that man must pass through yeah. at a given point in his conscious existence. So it is passed on a fully reconstituted human personality. So this is, this is the last thing I'll say, and then I'll bite my tongue, because I think it's important, and you touched on it. The personality of man, is complex. You know, our body, soul, mind, heart, flesh, spirit, all these elements enter into personality and they comprise personality. So when therefore man is to be judged, his personality has to be like reintegrated. And the reason I say that is because death has temporarily broken up our personalities. So it takes a resurrection to restore personality in all its parts, to integrate the true self. And therefore it is after the resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous that we find here's the Christian doctrine resurrection coming into play. It's a prelude to the judgment. All men in virtue of being men must share in that resurrection before they participate in that judgment. Yeah. Yeah. And th this gets into where I start to feel like I'm not hundred percent sure how to reconcile 
some of this with other other theological commitments. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump into it. I'm not gonna be shy about it. So I'm reading from Revelation chapter 20. We'll just go straight to the scriptures. And this is verse starting in verse 11, and we're gonna read through verse 15. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read the whole thing and I'm gonna go back and comment on a few things. And then I, I'll, I'll talk about what I what I don't want to say I'm uncomfortable with it, but I'm not sure how to how to make it line up. This is one of those areas where like we we haven't talked about this in a long time, but every there's always a point in a system systematizing of of theology where you have to sort of acknowledge that you just don't know. You just can't quite get the ends to line sure. up. Like there's a missing Lego brick or whatever analogy you want to use. So starting in verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. And with full acknowledgement and granting that Revelation is a is a complex book with lots of lots of symbolism, and we don't always want to take it too rigidly literally. There's a couple features here that I want to point out in this text because I think sometimes we collapse, and this is this we'll get into this maybe on another episode. We'll we'll, we'll throw the bomb out there and then we'll postpone it to to maybe next week. This is some of where John Piper gets into trouble, where where Reginald has gotten after him, right? Because he he collapses what I think the scripture clearly teaches as two distinct uh, verdicts or two distinct statements that are made about the dead at the final judgment. He collapses them into one assessment and then verdict. And so here here's my scriptural foundation for this. the The listener probably heard that I emphasized the phrase books were opened and then there's another book. So there seems to be from this passage, and I think this is justifiable from the rest of scripture. There's actually two um, evaluations or two assessments that are going on in this text. There's the books that are opened and these books seem to contain, as you're saying, like the totality of the moral quality of a person's life. Right. Right. It's, it's the record of all the deeds that they have done. And this is where I don't quite know how to reconcile my other commitments with um, with what the scripture seems to be saying here, is the scripture seems to be teaching, I shouldn't say seems to be, the scripture teaches that there is a distinction in our eternal experience um, that is somehow correlated and connected to the works that we had done, Right repeatedly in this passage, it says, according to what they had done, they were judged by was written in the books according to what they had done, right? Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. And for the righteous, that seems to imply some sort of increasing amount of rewards, right? Some sort of increasing blessedness and, and enjoyment in eternity. I don't know what that means. Like I don't, I can't articulate that. And for the, for the wicked, for those who are apart from Christ, there seems to be an increasing intensity of punishment, 
right? right? Uh, this is a crass phrase, but it's like hell is hotter for those who have been especially bad. And heaven is, is especially pleasant for those who've been especially good. And where that, where that there's a tension for me in that is I don't know what reward is better than getting Christ. And all of us get all of Christ in, in the, right. in the last day, all of us who are in Christ, we have all of Christ now and we will experience Christ in his fullness, in full unity. This is what the Bible says, or our, our confessional standards say. We will we will immediately experience the full enjoying of God to all eternity. That's a benefit right. we get at the final judgment. I don't fully understand how to line that up with, with what the Bible teaches about increasing rewards and increasing punishment. I, I just, I want to be honest and throw that out there for the listener. I just don't know how to do it, but the Bible clearly seems to be teaching it. And this is where... Uh, not to front load next week's episode too much with this. This is where John Piper gets into trouble, I think, because this evaluation of works is separate from the determination of who is actually going to be in eternity with God and who will be right. apart from God, right? That's determined by the book of life. So there's these books that were open that seem to contain all of the deeds of mankind and each person is judged according to their deeds and they're rewarded or punished according to their deeds. Then there's the book of life and it's the book of life that determines whether or not you will be thrown into the lake of fire and experience the second death or presumably it says it in other places, but not necessarily here, or presumably you will enter into blessedness with God for all eternity because your name is in the book of life. And when Piper collapses those two together and adds an, a level of evaluation, even though it's a for, kind of a foregone conclusion evaluation, when that evaluation of works somehow comes into play in determining your final status, your final, I don't know, your your final location, if we want to be sort of a, a, analogical about it, that's a big problem. So we're going to talk about that. I didn't know we were going to talk about that till next week, but now we're going to talk about that next week. But that's a feature of this text that we have to grapple with, is that there's these two distinct things. And I think this doesn't help me to reconcile my tension about increasing rewards and what does that even mean for someone? What does it mean to enjoy eternal reward? Somehow, is that supplementary to our enjoyment of God? That doesn't seem right. Is it replacing? That doesn't seem right. Do some people get to enjoy God more than others? That doesn't seem right. I don't know how to reconcile that. But I can reconcile the text because my works, there's nothing that I do or, or don't do that gets me into the book of life. Either my name is in the book of life, which elsewhere in scripture implies that God wrote that, wrote that in there before there was time. It wasn't a decision that was, it wasn't, God's not watching us and writing down our names when we, when we convert, right? That's an eternal, the imagery here is an eternal statement that we are in the book of life or we are not in the book of life. That is our eternal destination. Maybe what what we experience when we get to that destination is in some ways driven by what's in the other books. So I I think I've said enough. I'll let you weigh in on that on your thoughts on that. But it, it it's an interesting and actually this just jumped off the page at me when I was reading this text earlier. I don't I'd never really seen it this way, but it it seems so clear to me the way that this text is laid out. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it's helpful. Well, let's say this. I will let's not record next week's episode right now. So <laughs> let me let me cause us though to embrace that idea, but pivot slightly. So you're right. All systematized versions of thought, especially theology, should, if they're honest, eventually lead us to a place of mystery where we have to vouchsafe some trust to the fact that there are things that are beyond us, especially if we're talking about a transcendent and sovereign God who whose thoughts are so high above ours. 
we should find ourselves ending up there if we're really honest. You know, as a quick aside, I occasionally run into people and I just had a conversation with a brother not long ago when we were talking about reform theology and he said, and this is, you know, his his perspective was, at least as he expressed it somewhat pejorative, but he said, well, my issue with reform theology is like, you guys just have an answer for everything. I said, that's not true. Yeah. There's, if you think that everything is so locked down, that there's an explanation for every part of the scriptures and for God himself, that is a straw man for what reform theology would believe. Every system has to acknowledge that there is a mystery. And here we find it. The beauty of this, and this is where I want to pivot to acknowledge all those things, save them for next week, and yet come to a different part of our conversation is that we can vouchsafe the judgment itself to this savior, to this God who is always right. So that we don't understand exactly what all that stuff means and how he might apply, as it were, these varying degrees of hierarchical status of rewards. We know that because God is good, he will do it in a way that is right and just. And we ourselves will find agreement with that righteousness when we stand before him. So what I was thinking about as you were talking about that is not just these books, but there's kind of this presupposition in there that should lead us to a question, which is who is who is opening the books? Right. And I think where we end up is a person, personhood can only be judged by a person. I mean, this is the beauty of, of who God is and what he's done for us as his children. Human personality in all its relationships can only be judged before the supreme human personality. Yeah. And for that reason, we read that God has appointed a day, of course, in which to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. The Bible declares with full authority that the man is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. You know, we think about, I, I don't know how it works in different, uh, you know, different societies and different governments, but the underlying idea in like the U.S. justice system is that there's judgment by jury. It's by your peers. Why? Because they're most likely to enter fully and sympathetically into all of the personal human relationships involved. Yeah. The law in all of its cold interpersonal statutes could not deal basically with these personal relationships adequately. And so the final judgment, the one who's opening the books, is representing the human character, the presence of the man, Jesus the Christ. And God has appointed all judgment under the Son because he's the Son of Man. He's therefore in himself the supreme and final judge of human character. And of course, then, there can only be one of two verdicts. Like we said, it's right or wrong, righteous or wicked. The middle verdict of like non-proven will never be passed. Right. It just doesn't exist. But there's great comfort for the Christian knowing that the God-man is the one who brings the judgment. He is the one opening the books. He's the one adjudicating through all of that data, whatever it is and however he applies it. We know he'll be right because, again, going back to Hebrews, we have this one who is like us in every way, but was yet without sin, the one who allows us to come boldly, unreservedly into the throne room, not because of these works done in righteousness, but because of God's great mercy. And that mercy has a name. It is Jesus. So it's amazing that even when we find the mystery, we can trust in it. We, we vouchsafe it again to someone who's greater than us, who we know will sympathize with us, who's made a way for us, who is like us, but actually defeated sin, death, and the devil in every conceivable way. I'm so thankful that is the judge. That's the one who will be opening the books. Yeah. Yeah. I want to read one more passage here, and we won't have a lot of time to talk over, but I think it has many of the same uh, sort of features of a of a double 
a double judgment or a double element of judgment here. And this is, of course, Matthew 25. It's the the throne. They call it the glorious throne judgment. It's a very parallel situation, although not a parallel passage to what we just read in, in uh, Revelation 20. So starting in verse 31 and going through the end of the chapter in verse 46, it says, when the son of man comes in his glory, so we're talking about the last day, and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger or welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I don't want to belabor the point, but I want to, I just want to point out where there's this double sort of double judgment going on again. The key phrases in here is that he separates the sheep and the goat, not not determines who is sheep and who is goats. Sometimes that's the way I think we read this passage. The people who are sheep are made sheep because they did all these things, and the people who are goats are determined to be goats because they did all these things. I think I've probably even made the point that like sheep and goats look very similar, and really the only way you can tell them apart is by their behavior. That's not necessarily a wrong application here, but the reality is that sheep are sheep and goats are goats, right? Sheep don't, a goat doesn't become a sheep because it's very like kind and fluffy and like, like obedient and a goat, a, a sheep who is not those things doesn't become a goat. So the, the status of sheep and goats as sheep and goats is a fixed ontological reality. It's a category that is not determined by what the sheep and goats have done. And this is where I, this is right in this passage where I get the justification for this. Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, right? This is a predestination text. This is not people becoming sheep based on their good works or becoming goats based on their lack of good works. This is sheep who a found a, a kingdom an inheritance has been prepared for from the foundation of the world. They were determined to be sheep. They were created as sheep. They were made to be sheep and they will always and have always been sheep. Likewise, the goats are cursed. They're cursed and he commands them to depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, right? They're not, they're not cursed because they didn't do these things. They're not cursed. They're not made to be goats because they didn't do these things. If anything, they didn't do these things because they are goats. And the, the sheep did these things because they are sheep. So although there is an element here, there, there, there seems to be, and I think there is, a judgment according to works baked into this. There's no purpose to bring up the works. 
if the works are irrelevant to the passage, right? If there's no reason, if there's nothing riding on the works, then the works have no purpose in being in this text. And in regular human works, we might say, yeah, well, sometimes people just write irrelevant things. The Holy Spirit doesn't write irrelevant things. So there is a judgment according to works that's baked into this passage, but it is not an eternal destiny, an eternal destination judgment that is being pointed to here. And that's that same double feature that we saw in Revelation. And so what we'll unpack, I think we'll unpack more of of the second kind of judgment, the judgment according to works and how that how that seems to function in the scriptures, especially how that has been um how that's been understood wrongly in some of our more recent days. But I think just landing those that framework, right? The three the three part framework we talked about. There is a judgment. The judgment is there for God's glory and we are no, we're told about it in order to be comforted. That's the main framework. And then this idea that there's a judgment according to works that determines somehow like the experience of salvation or the experience of eternal salvation. And then there's the assessment or the judgment that determines salvation versus not salvation. And those are related but distinct judgments that seem to happen at the same time or in the same context. Yeah, cut to the brother of Jesus, James, who's like, that's exactly what I've been saying this entire time. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. There, I think what you're saying is like, there's only two types of character. So there are only two types of like, kinds of destiny, the destiny of the wicked and the destiny of the righteous. Character is destiny. Character is destiny because character is like the fixation of the moral trend of behavior. So in the course of this life, character is being built on moral issues and then manifests itself in moral behavior. Yeah. So at the end of the day, before again, I think we digress and record next week's episode right now, which is clear. <laughs> we just ramp up and take off again. All of that, I think we should unpack uh, next week. And I think there's a lot more to talk about there. But I think what we're set up here is this idea of this is going to be a real thing. This final judgment is a real quantity. Like death stamps character with moral permanence, but it's a permanence that lets the character pursue its course as it had begun, to your point. Yeah. And that beginning is manifest in God himself. And so you're right. It's not like a sheep intends to be a goat or go to sheep and somehow by virtue of their own behavior manifests and transforms, transmutates into a form that was other than it was meant to be. That's not the place that we find being expressed here in that scripture. So this is why I say at the top of our conversation that there is a little bit of dread here. There's a, at least it should be a holy dread for us. Even as Christians, we recognize that we come before God without this fear of, it's not a condemnation, but it should still be this holy dread that God's character is so perfect, that his searchlight so immutable and so piercing that we are going to have to bear underneath the weight of that, except that it will be transferred to Christ and we will cry out when God says, why should I let you into my heaven? We'll say something like, because you promised, because of what Christ has done on my behalf. That will be the answer. So there'll be no pride, there'll be no compunction to say, I've done these things, I've certainly done enough, I went to church every Sunday, I gave to the church, I donated my time. All those things are like nonsense, yeah. it really are. It's more about, again, man, it's like, I feel like everything you just said, you purposely baited, into, baited me into saying these three words, which I'm going to say, because I think it's exactly what you said. Intent precedes content. <laughs> and that's what we find here. So James is talking about it. You're talking about it. Some people get it twisted. And let's come back to it next week 
and really give it its full due. What do you say? I think that is a great idea. And before we wrap things up, I just want to give a quick shout out. You know, we, we, um, we love doing the show. We love getting the opportunity to, uh, talk about theology, to praise Jesus and to come alongside the reform brotherhood community, um, both in our telegram chat, but also we get emails and other communication. We love all of those opportunities. And we want to say, especially thank you to the people who contribute financially to our show to make it possible for us to do that. So Patreon is, is, you know, kind of the main vehicle that we use to do that. We do occasionally get someone who sends us like a, a lump sum on PayPal or something like that. But Patreon is the main way we do that. And Patreon gives us like a number of different analytics. And what I think is really cool is in the last six months, we've had a, a net of five new people who are supporting the show in six months. Amazing. It's it's amazing. It's so humbling. It's so, uh, it, it gives, God. I think a lot of podcasters, um, this is going to sound weird, but they podcast with no accountability. And one of the things that I've been been convicted of, as long as I can remember in, in doing podcasting, and even before when I wasn't podcasting, but I was listening to podcasting, is that podcasters are public individuals who need to be accountable. And in a certain sense, we're accountable because people, if we if we go off the rails and we start teaching, you know, heresy, then people will stop supporting the show. So there's an accountability baked into the fact that this is a, a crowdsourced, crowdfunded show for the most part um, that I, I think is really important. So we would love we would love to be accountable to you if you have a little bit of extra at the end of the month uh, or at the end of the, the week, whatever you like. Um, if you have a little bit of extra, you've fulfilled all your commitments to your local church and to your family, and you'd like to be a part of what we're doing and you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash reform brotherhood. Some people give a, a relatively small amount, a dollar a month, $2 a month. Some people give significantly more than that. Every little bit helps us to make sure that we've got the right equipment. If a microphone breaks, we're not going to be scrambling, trying to figure out, you know, where am I going to get the funds to purchase a new microphone or a new computer or something like that. Um, it keeps the show sounding good. It keeps us so we don't have to, we don't have to stress out about the nitty gritty mechanics of it. We can really focus on putting together good content and making sure it gets out on time. Right. One of the things that those really generous donations, large and small, and they're all needed and they're all super helpful goes towards is again, we said this before, but I think a lot of people, I didn't think about it until you and I started doing this, just like the ability to, aside from like the recording itself and the, the equipment, just like the hosting, putting this up online, yeah. like it, it's a little bit more complicated than you might think it should be. And in addition to that, it can be a little bit more expensive to make sure again that it pops into whatever podcast app that you have, and it, like it doesn't take forty-five minutes to download. Which in the beginning, it took a long time it to did. download the episodes, and so people would just be turned off and say like, "Oh, I, I'm why would I listen to this? Like it's taking me too long. I'm just out of here." Yeah. And so we want to make it accessible to all people. So our hope is that you will talk about this with your loved ones and your families, not about Tony and I. But about the things that we're discussing, that you'll take some time to think about the eschaton, to think about the final judgment. And then, you know what? Strike up a conversation with a person over a great beverage or on the Lord's Day at your church and worship God in the acknowledgement of who he is in all of these vast topics that we've had the pleasure of bringing up over 365 episodes. So we hope we'll come back next week because we're planning on doing 366. And then by that point, a person who has never heard us speak could take the entire year catching up. It's true. It's true. That's a lot of Tony and Jesse in your ear holes. So that's actually correct. Uh, 
if you are a person who has listened to all 366 episodes, then there's no prize, but kudos to you. That's, that's a, I don't know if it's an impressive accomplishment, but it's certainly an accomplishment of some sort. So Jesse, I think that probably just about does it. I'm excited for next week's conversation because I think what the conversations that excite me the most are the ones that I'm a little bit less confident about because I feel like it's a chance for us to really process and actually do theology constructively kind of in front of people, which is something I'm really passionate about. So I'm really, really looking forward to talking through next week. Um, and who doesn't love a little bit of John Piper criticism. So we'll get that in there too. And Jesse, until then honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>